0: I want to tell you guys all about Cave Day, which I've been absolutely loving the last few months. I joined Cave Day after reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. You might have even heard me mention Cave Day during the Atomic Habits five-part miniseries. Cave Day are group-focused sessions led on Zoom that focus on monotasks. So have you ever had a task where you constantly feel just distracted by Instagram, your phone, text messages, TikTok? It takes you forever to do something super simple. Cave Day asks you to put your phone somewhere where we can't see it and focus on the one task ahead of you for the period of time you're in the cave. I take it one step further and use one of their weekly planning workshops to decide on my goals for the week breaking them down into mono tasks and planning out my week of caves so I can get it all done. I've never been so productive. You can do one, you can sign up for one, two or 3 hour long sprints depending on the task in front of you. And it doesn't even have to be work. Let it be that yoga session you keep pushing off or meditating or making a fun lunch but have other people there to be accountable. I work from home and sometimes, especially with this podcast, it often feels like I'm doing everything on my own. So logging into these focus sessions, seeing other people work, using cave day strategies and techniques and routines that help me stay on top of it. I feel like it's just a no brainer. Join me today. Try the first month for only a dollar or your first three months for only $40. I get so much work done in the cave without feeling burned out. The link is in my show notes for the discount. Welcome to a new episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller. And this podcast is a guide. It's a guide to pursuing a career in the entertainment industry, focusing on these mentors and how they started, and then how did they move up to get to the awesome job that they are doing today. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to my podcast on whichever platform you are currently listening to, and maybe a couple more just for fun. Who knows? Maybe you're Spotify and an Apple podcast listener. And yes, if you haven't already, please follow me on Instagram at Michelle Simone Miller and at mentors on the mic and say hi, I really like to get to know you guys. And if you have any suggestions or tips or recommendations for the podcast, let me know. Our mentor this week is Leslie Converse. Leslie is a badass. I met her um, basically through the directory of this organization I belong to called the New York Women in Film and Television. She is both a producer and a post-production supervisor. She tells us about her start in the industry, assisting director Frank Oz on movies such as The Indian in the Cupboard, In and Out, starring Kevin Kline and Bowfinger, starring Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. She goes into how she started as a post-production supervisor and what that normally entails, and working closely with amazing directors such as Ron Howard, Steven Soderbergh, Frank Oz, Noah Baumbach, and more. She has worked on incredible films, such as Marriage Story with Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, Laura Dern, Ray Liotta, and Alan Alda. The Laundromat, with Meryl Streep, Gary Oldman, Antony Banderas, David Schwimmer, and more. The Stepford Wives, starring Nicole Kidman, Bette Midler, and Matthew Broderick, just to name a few. She also discusses getting into producing and how much of a commitment that means, especially as a mother. And one of her latest projects was Noah Baumbach's White Noise, starring Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, which she was a post-production supervisor and executive producer. In this episode, we dive into Leslie's incredibly interesting career and one possible path to production that many people might not even think about. As an actor, I truthfully really didn't know that much about post-production. I, I know about a little bit about editing, color correction, ADR, or looping, where actors go into a studio and record pickup lines or additional lines to be placed back into the film or show. But that's kind of it. In fact, Leslie introduced the idea of group looping to me, which we dive into on the episode. Without further ado, here's Leslie Converse. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. Thank you for being here. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. Um, I feel like I, I've interviewed so many people in on this podcast, but I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone with the type of position you have. So I feel like I'm learning about this in a different way. Sure. I'm learning this with the audience. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on. Um, my first question that mm-hmm. I always ask, just as a matter of tradition mm-hmm. and habit, is what was your first role in the entertainment industry?
1: Uh, well, if you talk about small entertainment industry that one does when one's in one's hometown before you head off, uh, I came of age in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, which is dating myself, but uh, we had local cable access television, and uh, that was what you did if you wanted to work in the uh Industry with air quotes at that particular stage of the game is the closest you could get, because I was growing up in small town New Hampshire, and the uh, guy who ran the local station basically didn't like doing the classes to teach the community how to use the equipment. Mm-hmm. So I learned it and started doing that on his behalf, and so that was sort of the first thing I did on that level. And yeah. then in terms of actually working. On a project that people might have seen or heard of, uh, when I was fresh out of film school, I was the director's assistant to Frank Oz on *The Indian in the Cupboard*, which oh. came out of working at Jim Henson Productions, sort of part-time as a kind of production coordinator while I was in college. So, you know, Whew,
0: so many things there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about all of it if you don't mind. Sure. So, so when you studied mm-hmm. when you first worked you know at sort of this local cable mm-hmm. news station, was mm-hmm. it news or just it was, it was just, just cable a ca- it was cable yeah. access you cable know access. between two ferns kind of thing you know it was that oh, the, yeah. love. <laughs> and then what sort of equipment were you teaching on just so oh, out of, out of curiosity as to what you were getting better at, what skills you were developing um, there? Well, it was a little bit of everything because of course
1: that's homemade television it was the uh you know, the the, the three tube cameras that were studio cameras, and you couldn't take them out into the field, um, editing on three quarter inch tape, things like that. It was before nonlinear editing came on, but it was still computer assisted editing. So Mm. it was probably the shooting and the editing that were the most accessible, because that's what everybody needed to do. There wasn't very much by way of producing or production design or lighting, even, you know, you learned how to set up basic field equipment, you know, get what you needed, and then go back, put it together into a segment that you could then, broadcast for the 12 people watching community access television
0: got it and mm-hmm. doing this is that when you decided you want to go to film school or
1: no i i actually knew i wanted to work in movies before that and the cable access station was the nearest proxy there was where i was growing up no i uh i think i wanted to work in films the minute i realized you could make a living at it it's like oh you could paid for that you know and sort of uh that
0: sort of set the trajectory. So like I said, cable access was the closest I could get. And I've it, had a similar moment as an actor where I was like, oh, you can get paid to do yeah. this thing that we do for fun? Mm-hmm. This is great. Right. Um and so that's so you went to film school you went to NYU, written it, NYU. Yeah. that's why I thought mm-hmm. so you went to NYU mm-hmm. and then was it there that you started PAing at you said Jim Henson so like you did all the couple muppets projects Yeah there there cool. you know
1: I was a huge muppet fan and basically you know made my pilgrimage to 67th street which is where the townhouse used to be it's now sadly gone and basically knocked on the door wanting to do anything they'd let me do just to sort of be a part of things and um Got turned away with a "That's nice." Here's the door. The first time, but was uh, you know persistent and um, ended up doing. Uh, they were shooting Dog City, which was a uh, actually a Nelvana cartoon, but there were this sort of bookended by live action puppet segments and stuff like that so you know that those were shot at the townhouse in new york there were some good morning america segments that were done there and then when i was wrapping up at nyu and planning that pilgrimage to the west coast and kenny o'donnell who was the executive assistant to the henson family at that time kind of came over to my desk and said so you know you're going to the West Coast. I was like, yeah, you know, well, I'm going to give it a try. And everything just said, you should call Frank. And by this, she meant Frank Oz. And I was just like, I've met him a couple times, didn't know him well, you know, sort of huge person in my you know life, but, you know, didn't know him from anyone. And of course, Frank was directing at that point. And so I said, okay. And, you know, very nervously gave him a call. And he said, yeah, I'm looking for an assistant for my next movie, which was, you know, I didn't quite realize that's what I was being teed up for, but was very grateful once I did figure it out. Once I got over my panic, um, it was the Indian in the cupboard. It was shooting in uh, such Los a great Angeles. Movie. Oh, I'm glad you've seen it. It's it was my a childhood movie. Yeah,
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: Um, but and so I flew myself out to Los Angeles for the interview, um, met with Frank and then his line producer Bernie Williams, who is not the baseball player, but sadly no longer with us. You know, the meeting seemed to go well. But I was, you know, nervous and twenty-two years old and very, you know, wanted it desperately, but didn't really know how to go about getting it. And I told Bernie that I, you know, he asked when I was flying back to New York, and I said, you know, later that day because I only flown out for the interview. And um, he asked me to call him from the airport before I got on the plane, so I did, and basically got the can you start Monday, and it was like, you know, I live in New York cross country from here. I have $2 in my bank account. But what do you do? You just sort of swallow and say, yes, yes, I can. And then you hang up the phone and figure it all out. And I moved myself lock, stock and barrel to LA within three days. So that was... (laughs)
0: <laughs> how did you figure out how, I mean, obviously flights, I mean, that's just a matter of money and scheduling, right. but how'd you figure out a place to live?
1: Um, I Well, I had two cats at the time too, which was ironic, but um, I, I found a hotel, which was much further out of the center of the city uh, than I should have been, but I found a hotel that would let me stay with the cats and I... Flew out. And basically, I knew where we were shooting. It was at Sony Studios in Culver City. And so I had a sort of 10, you know, mile radius around there that I was looking for a place to live. It was uh, 1994 then. So the Northvale quake had happened. There was a Sad number of empty properties available and in various states of disrepair. So it was probably the easiest time to look for housing. And it was also before the LA housing market exploded to what it is today. So, you know, you just, I figured it out. Yeah, I commuted from a hotel that first week and put a security deposit down on an apartment thanks to my mom giving me, you know, fronting me a little money since I hadn't had a paycheck yet, you know, and was out there and worked with Frank for uh, a whole bunch of films for a while. But he was an East Coast director. That was the irony, is that he was. Based in New York, and as soon as we got to post production, because I'd only been hired for three uh, for the production period, I had three days off, and then Bernie called again. What do you think about coming to New York for a while? And they had to put me up in New York as a non-local
0: because I, you know, moved to LA. You just you were not <laughs> yeah. local anymore. Exactly. You used to be exactly. That would have been some. That's so funny. Yeah, so, so how was it? Tell me a little bit about being an assistant for a director. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Um, it's, I mean, you
1: know, Frank is wonderful. We've maintained a friendship over the years. He's a wonderful person to learn from and to just be around. He's very funny, very human. You know, a lot of the stereotypes for what you deal with when dealing with Hollywood personalities that he's not like, for which I'm grateful. But I was green. I'd definitely done production before, but I'd never been on a movie set before. Uh, Certainly nothing of that scale. I'd done student films and things like that. But, um, so, so, at least for me, you just sort of keep your mouth shut and watch and learn and figure out a lot of what's going on, what the process is, what the different departments do, how communication flows is probably the single biggest one. Because if you don't copy everyone on the planet, it wasn't emails back then. But, you know, on that memo, then someone is snubbed and doesn't know what's going on and feels left out of the chain of command. I mean, it's all very fascinating as you sort of figure it out. So Indian was also, you know, it didn't have gigantic stars or anything like that. So we didn't have a very tense set. It was, you know, relatively relaxed and comfortable. And it was about, you know, at the time they were cutting edge visual effects that we were doing, getting, you know, making light foot yeah. so small and so on and so forth. The little Bear, I guess, character name. So it was a fascinating introduction to that world. ILM did the visual effects and, you know, we wrapped up main unit photography more or less on schedule, but then when months over on the blue screen unit, because it was kind all about, the, yeah, exactly. Figuring so, it out. And- yeah. And it was kind yeah. Kind of find that it was a sort of old-fashioned movie on a studio lot with big sets yeah. and all that. You know, I mean, it was it was, you know, what you imagine movie making to be when you're learning about it. Whereas now, a lot more stuff is scaled down and so it, it was
0: 18 days in and out yeah like exactly you know exactly. it's not quite as big a lot of done in post-production which we'll definitely talk about yeah a lot was done in post-production again because of the miniaturization of our right. cast so you flew back to new york because the next project was uh in and out right yes, with kevin yes, klein it was. yeah Exactly. So that was a couple years later. Tell mm-hmm. me about that. I mean, that's a little bit of a different experience, I imagine. Oh, definitely was. Definitely. And it was nice. I knew
1: Frank by that time. So it wasn't right. like, you know, having to prove yourself for the first six months to convince everyone that you had a brain in your head. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, no, that was, um, that was very different. It was in New York. I was again on location, which was Mind-boggling to me, having been you know the sort of starving student in New York for so long. Right. Um, but you're coming uh, back to New York different, exactly. But um, you know, and that one we did have you know big stars. I mean, Kevin Klein, who's just an incredible gentleman, and Tom Selleck was in it too, of all you know people. And you know, Anne uh, Roth did the costume design on that one, and she is is legendary herself, and just a delight to you know know about and work with. I mean, and Ken Adam was the production design. G. Mac Brown was the with uh, the uh, line producer who was wonderful and very kind to me because I was still pretty green, you know. I mean, I'd been through one process. You don't have the you don't have that sense of how everything shakes out and you know what's how much is going to be normal versus how much is specific to the project, which you sort of get more of a sense of when you've got a few more projects under your belt. It was very much on location production. It was different than Indian, which was almost exclusively on stage and. Mm-hmm. Um, this This one was literally out in the world. We were at a high school in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey for all the school scenes, including that big graduation scene for what felt like months. It was probably not as long as I remember, but there were moments where it felt like the whole movie was being shot there. But um, and uh, Joan Cusack was also there, wonderful, and her wedding dress walking around. (laughs) So um, very, very different experience and a much more intensive production period because we were on location, but we weren't actually on location. We were all commuting out of New York just about every day to get there because it was right at the edge of the, the bubble. So. They were incredibly long days and but they were it was really good people, so it, it it didn't feel as bad as it could have given the hours and all that we were doing it had weather problems and everyone got sick over Thanksgiving and a week long insurance claim and you know all kinds of insanity but it was it was a fun shoot and I mean, with the cast like that, there was sort yeah. of never a dull moment in any way, shape, or form. You know, told my mom I'd met Debbie Reynolds, which of course That's, you know yeah, got big deal crazy excited. So you of know, of course, yeah. So it well, was, and
0: it, let me, and let me just just sort of check in about it. So mm-hmm. like, so the Indie in the cupboard had already come out, yes. I think. When yes, it had. You started working mm-hmm. on this. Mm-hmm. So is it common, especially as you know you were assisting mm-hmm. a director? Mm-hmm. Is it common for like that whole process of a film to be done before? Taking on a new project, like the the project after this was Bowfinger, right? Uh, yes, it was. So- yeah, no.
1: And Frank didn't really have. I mean, he he didn't have a standing production company. He had a deal at Touchstone, if memory serves, um, through Indian and In and Out, and it may have continued through Bowfinger. I can't remember. But he didn't keep a standing assistant. So I actually had time off between uh, the things and would go and do my own stuff or whatever uh, in the interim. But he's not a huge fan of development. He gets. Free frustrated if you put all kinds of time and energy into developing a project and then it doesn't, you know, go. So he would sort of, you know, he he was basically when he was looking to do things, he was looking for scripts that were close to ready so that it wasn't going to be a 10-year process of developing something that didn't get off the ground. So again, I was early with him. I don't think in and out was on the radar by the time The Indian in the cupboard was wrapping up. You know, he had young children. So the idea that, okay, now he's done with his movie. God. He's going to go disappear for a while and live his life. Um, so yeah, it wasn't something that, and again, if it was set up at that time, I may not have known because I was just still no, the coffee girl assistant curious. mostly. Yeah. But
0: yeah. And so the next one was Bowfinger with Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. Yes. How was that experience? Oh, that
1: one was a lot of fun. Um, it was just, I mean, Frank and Steve are old friends. So you have that wonderful camaraderie there. Michelle Vanitas was our first AD. She'd also done Indian in the Cupboard, but it was her second film. Bowfinger was with Frank and they just got on like, Gangbusters. One of my favorite editors who I got to meet, on, which, you know, came on for Bowfinger, Rick Pearson, and he went on and did the score with Frank as well. Um, Bernie was also, uh, you know, uh, executive producing that one, and so it felt like kind of like you know, yeah. getting a, a lot of you know people who knew each other well back together. And the film itself was so much about camaraderie and fun that um, yeah. it was just it was it was a fun one. I mean, I will always have this amazing image of that parking garage with the dog in the high heels because Frank was holding um, you know those glow sticks you know and and sort of directing but like off to the side but trying to get them to pace it exactly right so he you know it was it was like he was doing semaphore with glow sticks to you know get them to pace along with the uh, with the, what he wanted for to be intercut with Eddie's stuff and um, you know it was it was that one was one of the most fun experiences I've ever had just you know shooting a film Aww. so
0: yeah. Well, so, so during this time, this is mm-hmm. obviously this is now your third project with with uh, Mr. Oz with mm-hmm. Frank Oz. Mm-hmm. So, so at this point, are you starting to go like? Well, let me figure out what I want to do. Or like, A little bit, because um, that's when you start doing mm-hmm. post production supervising, I right, think, for the right. first Time.
1: Well, it was sort of twofold. On the one hand, on In and Out, the post supervisor on that was actually um, he was very friendly and warm, and you know, sort of talked to me. You know, I, and it's smaller in post. You know, in production, there's two hundred people on any given day milling about, and they all have very specific jobs and need to be at the right place at the right moment. Post production, it's about the director and the editor being locked in a room so they can work their way through the the, the cut, and um, there's more time to learn a little bit more in depth because it's one straight line that you're taking to get it, you know, to completion as opposed to fifty people trying to aim at a bullseye all at once from very disparate areas. So I'd learned a lot about post from Michael and um, going through the whole in and out process, and. Um, was kind of interested in giving it a shot. You know, I was feeling I, I had gotten to the stage where, you know, just getting coffee and keeping one individual's schedule was a little bit, you know, under-stimulating perhaps. And Frank also, because... He at that time lived up in Connecticut, and the director's cut was a time period where he would request the cutting room be set up near his home so he could have some more time with his kids. And so there was basically you had to you know, find office space, build infrastructure, set the whole thing up. And I'd been through that two times at that point, you know, on in, in the Cupboard, having nothing to do with it, um, on, but on in and out being able to see how it was done. And so by the time it came along for Bowfinger, I kind of knew the drill and we was able to set it up. And, um, you know, I was just eager to find some way to take on more responsibility and feel useful and more a part of the process. So...
0: Well so you definitely alluded to it a little bit there, mm-hmm. but just for the audience, can you define then what the role of post production supervisor is and what the responsibilities are?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, and it does, it varies from from film to film in terms of what people are looking for. In some cases, your post supervisor is practically your you know, your post producer, the you know, the only person who's doing the day to day work of getting everything done. And other times there are some studios who think they're basically hiring a travel secretary who also books ADR. So it it has a wide pendulum in terms of what it uh, covers. But really, um, it's very similar to what the UPM is for production, the post supervisor is for post. Now, again, it's much smaller, you know, the UPM's got a staff and a production not because they need that to be able to just deal with the sheer volume of all that's, you know, passing across their desk and that they're responsible for in post, it's much smaller. It's like, five people most of the time. And then you have, you know, additional outside vendors that you're also coordinating and, you know, working things through, but you're responsible for the post budget. You're responsible for the post schedule. Um, the studios very often, you know, like to basically create the plan and it's your job to execute it in terms of, you know, what's done when and how and what your benchmark schedule things are to hit and ultimately deliver the finished film. So, um, you know, I don't, <laughs> but like I said, it does run the gamut. If you've got a lo- strong relationship with the director, the job is very different than if you don't. If you have a strong relationship with the studio, the, do- the job is very different than if you don't um, because it's based on those sort of relationships and who trusts whom to do what and to speak with each other. I mean, my long standing joke on the less pleasant days of my job is that my title really should be Monkey in the Middle. But, um, you know, at the same time, you know, it, it's at its most basic. It's about communicating and providing that sort of fulcrum between studio expectations, director's intentions, and coming up with a practical map to get from A to B that covers both and to make them talk to each other no matter how much they don't want to if you're at an impasse, I feel like that
0: that's a super fun part of job. <laughs> it can be just like i love the idea of monkey in the middle just like okay let me pass it to the oh okay i'm gonna go over here yeah exactly exactly yeah oh fun Mm -hmm. oh you're so it's a lot of coordinating of personalities then too and just like can hmm, be yeah as well as schedules and you
1: know just there's 78 goals that you need to sort of hit before you get to the end and
0: how you navigate through those so a lot of creativity then to get from creative point problem a point solving B. certainly yeah, problem yes solving. yeah it certainly can be so and so, typically, because I don't know this, so these mm-hmm. are some of my questions: mm-hmm. uh, Is there are there multiple post production supervisors, or there really is just one usually? Well, it could.
1: There's a there are two different paradigms now. There's the feature film paradigm, which is the world that I'm from. Um, episodic television, right? it's not television anymore. Episodic streamers, you know, whatever you know, whatever. Yeah, that is a very different story. I'm actually very curious about that, not having worked in that realm, but in features, it's t- generally one person. If you're lucky to be on a large feature, you have a coordinator and a PA, but that's not all the time, just budgets, you know, being what they are that <laughs> very yeah. often you don't. Post supervisors very often will work across several films at once because you do have sort of peaks and valleys in terms of what needs to be done. If you're supervising the machine and it's all set up and running, you know, you know there's not as much to do so you can, you know pay attention to another project at times like that. And that's why sometimes a coordinator isn't always warranted. I know many post supervisors who in working across several projects at once do tag team with a coordinator so that every project always has someone, you know, taking care of them whenever uh, it's needed. And, you know, that works very well. So um, I've tended to be a little bit more solo. I had a wonderful uh, post-production coordinator on White Noise, Kirsten uh, is it? who was great. Um, but that's a luxury I don't often get. Um, and it's hard, you know, taking the time to train someone when you can sort of, you know, right. do it yourself. And if you've got gaps right. between work and your coordinator gets a job, you know, you don't want to stop them from getting a gig. No. Yeah. So, you, I'm not sure if that answered you, the question fully no, it totally but, okay, answered okay. the question
0: <laughs> and then post production supervisors, do you find them mm-hmm. um mostly to be men, mostly to be women, or just a combination of both? It doesn't it's it's, it's really a open. pretty fair split now um, for a while it felt a bit
1: female centric um you know, and certainly the ones that I've known the longest and sort of came up with you know I've, there's a bias towards female in that particular point, but um at this stage, you know, for every wonderful, amazing uh, female post production supervisor I can name, I can certainly match with a, you know, with a guy who's just as good and uh, experienced. So, Great. I Feel like it, you know, there's probably some legacy bend towards the fact that it started being a little bit uh, more, for whatever reason, statistically populated by women. But I feel like now um, it's it's fairly half and you know, come and think of it. The, the when I was first starting. Um, there may have been more men. I'm wondering if it's sort of been a pendulum swing back and forth because, you know, Michael Alden was the one that I learned from on in and out And then Paul Levin has been in New York uh, forever. And I, when I was doing Bowfinger, it was my first time. I think I spent more time in his office running down the hall going, okay, what, this happened. Now what do I do? And he was kind and patient and, you know, pointed me
0: in the right direction. <laughs> so oh. interesting. Mm-hmm. And also just the idea that you'd think, you know, it's, it's obviously a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. in the entertainment industry is definitely not linear, right? But there's this element of like, you didn't have to go from coordinator to supervisor in this Mm. case. Right. I think that was part of what was appealing to me about it when I was looking to make the
1: the sort of um, moving out of the assistant position into something that I felt like I could actually be wrangling as opposed to the idea of coordinating for a long time um, to, to be able to make that leap was probably not as appealing. And, you know, Post is, it's very different from production, but it's very, it's an exciting creative, you know, phase to sort of be through. So I've always enjoyed Post and sort of seeing the clay stop just being a mound of dailies, you know, and starting to Yeah, feel like a film. Exactly.
0: Well, I've always been told, I don't remember who said it initially, but I've definitely quoted this a couple times. But I've heard that, like, you know, there's films, there's like three films in sort of the process of Mm -hmm. production. There's pre-production film, production film, and post-production film. So Mm -hmm. it's this interesting thing of, like, you guys are taking this film that people... Went in thinking it would look a certain way, and then right. filming went okay, it's going to look like this, mm-hmm. and then really post is where it becomes the film that we see. Yes, so I always find mm-hmm. that to be really interesting in terms of putting it together at the end. There's this element of like, this is the film that we came to, you know, that based on what we have, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. and it can, it's still malleable, it's not like you know, it may, but it may not be the thing you thought it was when you started six months ago, right? Doesn't mean it's less not, than or yeah, more not at than, all. it's
0: just the new thing that it is. Right. And yeah, it's the clay so on your wheel. A lot goes into that. And then do you also, are you in charge, are you part of like, uh, what's the process with ADR at this point? Because there's going to be a lot of looping. There's going to be ADR in post-production. That a little bit. You know, it, it, it varies. ADR, um, sometimes you have a lot,
1: sometimes you have a little. Um, it's uh, sometimes you need it to help with story points and sometimes you need it just because A truck drove by in the background and you lost all her lines. And so you just need to. So sometimes it's technical. Sometimes it's creative. It is one of the most efficient ways of tightening or redirecting your story without having to go to a full fledged reshoot. If it's just like nobody ever said who Tim was, can't we put some line in there so we know who we're, we're talking about when we say Tim, you know. Sometimes yeah. it and it can be uh, you know very incisive that way, and other times you know it can be relied on a little too heavily to try and put stuff in the film that's not there. So it's a tool like any other; it can be used right. for good or evil. <laughs> but, for um, sure, but and depending on where you are in the process, basically, um, you know, the director and editor lock themselves away for ten odd weeks for your director's cut. Some directors get their, you know, especially if they're working with an editor they know and love and have a relationship with, they can have a cut ready within a few weeks, you know, relying heavily on what the editor has done already and with some tweaking and pushing and pulling with the director. And then very often is when you may get a request for a friends and family screening or some sort of small the director will share uh, the film with some small group of close associates. It, you know, you don't have to show the studio until you're at the end of the 10 weeks uh, sort of phase by and large. And the minute you start showing your film to anyone who's not the editor sitting next to you, that's when the ADR requests start coming because you do want that little story point or you do need her to say, but I can't on Tuesday or whatever the line is that it, and that can be done with temp ADR. I mean, I've put my voice in more films, you know, just, you know, but it pops if it's not the actual actor. So if you're going to, if you're going to do anything that's more than like five people sitting in the cutting room with you very often you 'll want to get an actor in just to sort of smooth over that and then the and then each time you reach a screening point there's similar areas where there's a new plot point or we change that line or she 's not cha- looking for a purple slipper anymore now it 's orange whatever, and right. you just need to have those little tweaks so that is where it can come up early in production by, in, I'm sorry, in post. In by post. and large, it comes up later, though, once your cut is locked, because that's when you do all your technical fixes. That's when a poor actor might get called in for four or six or 10 hours of replacing dialogue because of the generator in the background that they couldn't find a way to right. silence when they were shooting. And that's the sort of longer technical ADR that then you do, you know, roll all of your, uh, you know, y- your story points and things into as well, because sometimes you'll get the story points recorded on an iPhone from your actor friend who you know will do it for you and then email it to you but then you got to replace it with a you know studio recording it's like a it's like a
0: yeah right hold a temporary hold and of
1: course there's also loop group which is what when you bring in a group of actors who aren't necessarily in the film they are voices to flesh out the whole world around you and they have to be well cast well organized able to fulfill the diverse range of whatever types of stuff you might need to fill the film with whether it's cheering at a sports event, pounds people walking by. Um, If you go to an exotic locale and you need people who have a particular accent or knowledge of a particular area or subject matter, they breathe a lot of life into the film because that's where... You start to feel, you know, the, all of sound helps the you feel the world around you. Yeah. but yeah, but that's where actors' voices are part of the paints in the or on the palette that that do that fleshing out and making the world feel real. And that usually you also do close to lock pictures, so you do it once because it's a large group of people sort of coming in and having to. And you want to do what you really need, but every once in a while you need something for a preview. So sometimes you do it twice.
0: So interesting. Well, if you ever, I should say this, if you ever need just like an extra actor, you know another one in New York you could just call. So I'll bear that I'm, in mind. I'm there. Yes. But that's so interesting mm-hmm. how it all comes together mm-hmm. and just this idea of a loop group, which I never really thought about. But I mean, I've done ADR for films that I've been in, but sure. I've never thought about like the extra, mm-hmm. the looping, the, the crowds, yeah. if you will, that come with it. Exactly.
1: You know, if that's someone's so giving a sermon and you need amens, you know, that's that's where you get them. They're Nobody has the time or the energy by and large to mic people in the background in a scene. You know, you need to hear what, you know, Catherine Hepburn is saying. You can, yeah. and you can add the rest later. So,
0: yeah. Oh, post-production, man. It's real. It's a it's a real thing. This is cool. So I'm going to skip a few years because, mm-hmm. uh, so you've done, you were now doing incredible projects mm-hmm. um, involving mostly post-production yes, at this point. Yes. And I'm skipping to 2004 because this mm-hmm. is when you co-produced mm-hmm. the film The Stepford Wives, yes. which is a great movie, great <laughs> cast. I mean, a lot of the movies you've worked on have fantastic casts, oh, mind you. Well. But like Nicole Mit- you know, Kidman, Bette Midler, mm-hmm. Matthew Broderick. Um,
1: right. And this was
0: also directed by frank Oz. yes it was so did you ask to be a co-producer what was that entail like how did that like how did that come about what was your role as producer now in this well that was that was that was a, an
1: interesting project for myriad reasons but um honestly at that point I was starting to actually want to move past post a little bit. I was kind of like, all right, been there, done that, know what I'm doing. And I was wanting to move a little bit up more the producing chain. And so I was still with Frank. And in that case, basically, was from the first pitch that Scott Rudin and Paul Rudnick gave him about the screenplay and all that. I was actually able to be in the, that meeting and was in all the, the sort of writing meetings and stuff like that. So I was more of a you know co-producer in the true sense at that stage of the game, but with the idea that, of course, I would also oversee post, it had a large visual effects contingent. So I was going to be able to be on top of that as well. Um, so you know, there were areas where I could lean into my post specialty that would serve us through the whole show. But it also allowed me to capitalize on my the the relationship Frank and I had had for years yeah. in terms of working together and, um, you know, giving notes on this story and where things were. And so, I mean, it was, it was, that was a really formative and amazing experience, even though that was it, that the production had many hurdles and difficulties to get through, through the course of it all, not the cast, as you indicated. I mean, that was really a
0: lot of heavy hitters. Yeah. And
1: that was all uh, Scott's doing. So, you yeah. know, he gets all the kudos for that. But when you have that many people of that you know, magnitude in a room at any given time, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And it was a huge production. So, um, but yeah, it was, You know, it 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 was. (laughs)
0: It was. Did you did you have a conversation with Frank ahead of time, being like, "I'd like to to do more on this one." Actually, yeah, and I was actually
1: going to be an associate producer on it, but the show went on so long, um, and I was involved in it that it was actually Scott who bumped me up to co producer. So that was a very nice thing to have happen on the show. And uh, yeah. And
0: so then my next question for that would be when does post production supervising tend to start? Because I mean, a lot of people would think it'd be after the movie wraps, but it could start no. right. Yeah. The, the sort of standard paradigm, if you have the funds or the
1: foresight, and preferably both, is normally you should have your post person picked out. In, pre, in pre-production and your post-supervisor, and not every studio agrees, but this is my opinion, your post-supervisor uh, should go over the post-production budget and the post-production schedule after reading the script and having a conversation with the director so that you know what the ask is, what the intentions are, and be a part of building the plan to get from A to B. And, um, I mean, again... Not everyone agrees. Most people don't want to pay for it. But so the general idea is that you can be on for a couple of weeks of, you know, prep and setup, anywhere from two to six weeks at the very beginning. Then you go away for a while while they shoot the movie because there's, not always that much to do while shooting's happening. And then you come back, you know, once, yeah, you basically start up usually two weeks before wrap because very often the cutting room needs to be moved or the media needs to be moved and you just sort of handle getting everything into the right places and laying the groundwork, and then you're on for post. That does not always happen. I'm sure that every post supervisor, yeah, you know, you get that call, hey, we're going to post next week. Can you come on? And it's like, and you get handed a budget that somebody else wrote with a schedule that is some studio's fantasy and you know to figure
0: it out. And,
1: and yeah, and you do, but very often it starts with a okay, you don't have enough money for X, Y, and Z, and this is that, you know, and all you can afford in this direction is that, and how would you like to proceed? But that's very different than being involved in the beginning. And in some cases, you know, again, if there's a relationship with the director, a relationship with the producer or the studio, Being on all the way through has never caused any harm. I mean, there's always work to do and, you know, and and you end up. It's not like you're
0: idle and just being paid for nothing. No,
1: exactly. It's (laughs) there's always something that needs doing. And so, yeah, it might be a little easier than your last 10 weeks of delivery at the very end when you're trying to tie it all off with a bow. But it's not uh, there's no idle hands in a scenario like that.
0: So, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm going to just move forward in a way Mm -hmm. because I just have so many questions. But um, (laughs) So in thinking about directors that you worked with, because you've worked with incredible directors in addition Mm -hmm. to Frank Oz, Mm -hmm. um, Steven Soderbergh in 2019 Mm -hmm. with the movie Mm -hmm. High Flying Bird. Mm -hmm. And then in 2019, uh, same year, you also worked with Noah Baumbach Mm -hmm. in A Mm -hmm. Marriage Story. So can you talk a little bit about, A, working with both directors, but B, like, how to get your next job right because it kind of makes sense you know when you're starting it's like okay so and so needs something for the next project they're working Mm -hmm. but how does how does it work after a while Uh, well i don't know
1: it's tricky to say because i haven't found the pattern yet um you know in one of those kind of situations um I had taken a mommy break in my, uh, which is the big gap in my resume. I had a kid and sort of, and didn't quite figure out the working and parenting thing. So I ended up just parenting for a while, and when I came back to it, it was actually Logan Lucky was the first one that I, I did with Stephen. And but you know he is an incredibly intelligent. Not that you know, all directors, there's a certain bar for intelligence if you've gotten to be a director, but he's incredibly intelligent. He knows exactly what he wants, and he is the most one of the most efficient filmmakers I've ever seen. So he doesn't, you know, he he just has a machine, wants to, you know, get it done and because he knows what he wants and he's got people he's worked with for years. They were in a spot where they were looking for a new post supervisor, but he's got a sound supervisor who's worked with him for so long and an associate editor who's now moving up the producing chain with him. They kind of just needed someone to take care of the the day-to-day stuff and me having you know, miss the evolution from uh, 35 millimeter to yeah the digital <laughs> that we're all in. It was a good a place good for me to be able to sort of you know get up to speed because um, you know it was a well-worn track. You know, they just needed someone to do the stuff and make sure everything was taken care of. Um, but you know, and that gave me a great opportunity to learn about everything i have missed. Um, and then it just sort of kept going. And you know, in in Stephen's case, he's incredibly prolific, so there's always something else that starts. Starting up. So I actually. How were you
0: introduced to him initially?
1: Um, through Larry, the uh, the sound supervisor. So he knew me from, through uh, my ex husband, who was also a sound supervisor, and he'd reached out, and um, so it was it was Larry Blake who brought me back in after, cool. you know, years in the uh, motherhood realm, and worked with him on you know a number of those projects with Stephen. Yeah. I don't think he did uh, High Flying Bird or um, Let Them All Talk or Unsane, but he did you know, he did uh, Logan Lucky Laundromat and I,
0: Oh yeah, Laundromat and, and No
1: Sudden. Too. exactly yeah. so so good yeah so lots of
0: great I mean it, and it's interesting because I, I really didn't know about the relationship that post-production mm-hmm. supervisor and director have mm-hmm. so it right. does make sense that you're I mean especially in Steven Soderbergh's case because mm-hmm. I have heard that he uses a lot of the same people yeah. again and mm-hmm. again but in general like you're, you're creating mm-hmm. these relationships with people mm-hmm. so then the next one is Noah Baumbach mm-hmm. which you yeah. worked with on a couple of projects so how was that tell me about working on that project uh, well, I loved that movie uh,
1: Marriage Story was really amazing I can remember. Uh, I knew the previous post supervisor on that, Catherine Farrell, who's a dear friend of mine. She had done several. She I think she did Mistress of America. Was it while we were young? I can't remember which ones. But in Meyerowitz, she certainly had done Meyerowitz. She'd done a number of films with him. She couldn't take on Marriage Story as it was coming along, and so she called me and that sort of said, you know, when you can't do a show for someone, you try and replace yourself reasonably well. And, for whatever reason, her pick was me, and um, <laughs> so I, you know, it was a simple matter of meeting with Noah and his then editor Jennifer Lame, who was wonderful. You know, I really kind of just came on to help out, do what I could. You know, he's an inc- again, I, it, I feel ridiculous always no, saying no, incredibly, he's intelligent, he's incredibly, incredibly intelligent, but he's very incredibly intelligent, very precise, specific. He also knows what he wants, from he what I in wants interviews. and he's you know, always got his own path to get there, and it's not always like the paths you've trod before and you know, you just figure out how to, you know, find a new way to walk sometimes. But, you know, it obviously, it's in service of a film that's worth it. So yeah, it was a, that one was just sort of very starting cold. Uh, he takes a longer to edit than he goes a little bit past the 10 weeks that's that's sort of normal. So in the beginning, it was just, you know, very perfunctory providing the little things they needed, but they were kind of in their bunker, uh, cutting for a long time. And then when we came out of it, you know, got to see the film. And I mean, I would read the Screenplay before I started and enjoyed it very much, but the film you know elevated as you hope every yeah uh, exactly as you hope every film does. So you know it was really obvious that it was quite special very early on. From there, we just started finishing it, and he bumped me up to associate producer. Well, I was going to ask that, about yeah, that. There yeah, was a bump there too, exactly, which I didn't expect, and I was incredibly touched by and grateful for that. That uh, that he. Seemed to enjoy what you know what I was doing and so on and so forth and and it went on a long time. I remember that because we uh, the, the the cutting process took a while and then because we were sort of late in our schedule, we missed some availabilities with sound and with our colorists. so we had to sort of protract a little bit on the other side to be able to you know come back around to their next availabilities. Yeah, it was a, an amazing, amazing experience and got to meet Alan Alda, which was one I'm... of the nicest, oh, most so awesome. uh, you know charismatic. People I've ever stood in the presence of. He was just amazing. And I mean, it was five whole minutes, but still, it was great.
0: (laughs) It was a great five minutes. It was.
1: It was. So.
0: Oh, so good. And then right after, I believe, was uh, Hillbilly Elegy, right? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Starring Amy Adams, Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Directed by Ron Howard. So, how was that? I mean, listen, like the directors you've worked with. (laughs) Oh, he's just silly.
1: He's an incredibly (laughs) nice guy, just very warm and accessible and, you know, treats everyone incredibly well well. Just a real delight to sort of be around. He had uh, his producer, Bill O'Connor, who was also very much a part of Post and was great to work with. Uh, James Wilcox was the editor on that. And he was, again, I mean, just great people, fun to be around, great at their jobs, but just an incredibly warm environment. That one was, you know, a good experience, but that's the one the pandemic hit during. We had just finished a weeks of re- a week of reshoots. They'd gone, I think they shot them in LA. I was still in New York with Post.
0: That's good and that they just finished the reshoot. Shoots. Yes,
1: it was. I think they shot one day longer than the general Netflix shutdown just because they only had the one day left, so we got that done and that was the show where you had to figure out how to take your cutting room and send it to 10 separate houses, uh, you know, homes, people working from home remotely, which we'd never done before. And of course, I also remember the humor. We all thought it was just for a couple of
0: weeks. Yeah, Yeah. no one could ever imagine what that turned into. exactly. But how was it for you sort of trying to adjust then to get like to working from home, everyone working from home? It was was doable, uh, which was surprising. It was possible
1: to do the... it cut out a lot of the collaboration, interaction, and and part of what's fun about filmmaking. And I felt like I was stapled to my desk at home from about eight in the morning till eight o'clock at night. And then I'd forget to feed my
0: son lunch because I was gonna ask because your kids in the other room. So it's like, not doing work. Exactly.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was just like, you know, you'd have your grade on your iPad, the mix on your laptop, and then a zoom connection on your phone and try it was just, not my favorite thing um and it you know it took away the the sort of collaborative aspects of it yeah it was not it was but I mean, we got through it and it felt kind yeah. of like an accomplishment to get through it and i didn't have to commute for 6 months which was kind of cool right but yeah it's i'm i'm glad to be back in person
0: and are you mostly local mm-hmm. to New York at this point? Like, yeah. do you want to travel anywhere? Is it um, not? I will. I would like to
1: in the future, but my son is now 15 years old, gonna, and when I yeah. did White Noise, I was on that in production as well. So I was in Cleveland for eight months. Well,
0: so let's talk about that because oh. because mm-hmm. that's my next question anyway. Oh, okay, that's My Got last it. question mm-hmm. it was Noah Baumbach's film White Noise, mm-hmm. which came out last year uh, yes. with Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, exactly. Um, can, so so yeah, tell us about that. So it was on location. You were also executive producer so yes. I just wanted to add that too for uh, context. Thank you. So you went to Cleveland for this? Uh, went to Cleveland for it yeah the book was sort
1: of loosely set in you know, Ohio generically yeah. Chagrin Falls which was right near where we were you know I think that Don Delilo had said at one point that was basically the town um, we spent a lot of time prepping that because it was also pandemic time so everything to right. do took 400 times longer and there was also a general thought that well if there's vaccines by the time we start shooting maybe this won't be so bad but it was Aww. an interesting it's a screenplay we that, didn't I, that you never know how you'd react to if you'd read it before the pandemic if that makes any sense which right. was interesting with their whole the, the whole second act being about the town-wide evacuation and toxic chemicals right. and life being turned upside down so that was an interesting thing but um Yeah, so the first few months, it was like Jess Goncher, our production designer, driving all over looking for the right place to shoot the film. And, uh, you know, Noah was, uh, I think he was sort of polishing off the script and really thinking mostly about casting at that point and starting to pull in the department heads. Our line producer was Brian Bell, who came on board and sort of gave everything structure and form and, you know, momentum, which was fantastic. Yeah, it was a long, long slog in Cleveland, um, which. God, I mean, it was it was so long. I've never been on a film, you know, because we've been doing the prep and then production and post, which took a year of its own. I was on it for two and a half years, so it's all sort of blurs together. But yeah, we were in Georgia for the train stuff that we shot. So it was just it was I loved being back in production again and having a lot to do there. Um, I, you know, in, in that case, certainly post was still my speciality. But, you know, have, you have some sense of visual effects and things like that. And We were crashing a train. Nobody else in the group had ever done anything related to that. So I was like, all right, great. My lack of experience doesn't put me any further behind anyone else. <laughs> so I was able to handle a lot of that stuff. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a huge complicated, um, thoughtful production. And um, so it it took a lot of time and energy, but that was where as much as I liked getting back into production again, when I came home, my son, who was 12, when I started the film, when when I was done with the project, he, we had his 15th birthday. And I just had that moment of, Oh my God, he's going to be in college in two and a half years certainly I can wait two and a half years before pushing too hard for next steps and things like that to be able to uh, go out again. So that's where it's like, yeah, I want to stay in New York for two and a half more years. Then I'll be wide open.
0: <laughs> well, no, that's really, mm-hmm. listen, there's, that's great to know about yourself and mm-hmm. it's cool that you've, you know, come to that conclusion and that you still want to travel, just not now. Oh yeah, just, definitely. Well, I mean, you want to go places to make the film. And when you're on location that it's,
1: It's insular in a good community building kind of way with your crew, but you also get to explore someplace new. You really feel like you're sort of on a mission and doing something um, uncharted when you go on location somewhere and you figure it all out in that new space. And, uh, you know, that's exciting.
0: And so just to clarify again, Mm -hmm. so as executive producer now, what are some of your roles and responsibilities that might have been different than previous? Is is it a lot to do with being on location being yeah
1: being there and being part more. of the
0: producing team for the film the decisions that comes up you know in terms of yeah
1: you know, how do you stay on budget what changes with the schedule i mean you've got there's so many more people in production and so there's a lot of input to take in and a lot of people you know your ad is handling the schedule the line producer's handling the budget but it's still a sort of overall conversation about everything um and you know dealing with whatever, uh, in that case with the relationship was with the director. So it was about what, you know, Noah wanted and Noah needed and how to best facilitate things. And I was probably the one who dealt with the, you know, like the train, nobody knew what we were doing with the train. So, okay. That I wrangled because exactly because it, you know, it was something sort of outside the normal roles and where things were at. So it gave me a place,
0: like I said, where I wasn't, um, working at a deficit because nobody else knew about, Either. So yeah. what's your favorite part about being an executive producer in a film, aside from the money and the role and all that stuff well, like in terms of day to day?
1: It's just it's it. There's a. It's actually not a day-to-day answer in a funny kind of way because it's the if you're there from the beginning to the end, like from the very beginning of prep to the end when you deliver the film, there's a much greater sense of completion and seeing something through. You know the intention, you know the brass, you know where it ended up, and that is deeply satisfying um, in a way that if you just come on for posts, you like you you inherit all the problems and you do your best to fix them, but. The thing that you wished had been green, that was purple, that maybe you could have affected, had you been on earlier. You, you're, yeah, the ship has sailed. You can't do anything about it. So, um, so that's the thing that I think I prefer. Uh, that is the single biggest allure of um, executive producing or producing in any capacity that isn't specific just to post. Is it's really you're there for the whole journey, and that is much more emotionally rewarding somehow. I don't know. <laughs>
0: I know that makes a lot of sense, actually. And so, on that note, what's next? What are you working on now? And how can our oh. listeners support you? Uh, wow,
1: well, goodness. Um, I'm not
0: used to that. Uh, I'm on one
1: project, on, well, I'm on uh, NDA's on both projects I'm on right now. Fair. So, I can't really discuss, but totally um, one is large and studio driven, the other is independent and uh, auteur driven with a director. And they're wildly disparate. And I'm enjoying the fact that they're complementary as opposed to anything that conflict. You know, it's some new people, some old people. And uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much, you know, monkey in the middle post supervising on both fronts. But um, that's the other thing is when you're an executive producer, you can still be a monkey in the middle, but you're a monkey with a little more power. So that's also right. useful.
0: <laughs> it's like you're a little taller now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, can...
1: you're, you're you're maybe not the silverback, but you know, you've got <laughs> some status. <laughs> that would be gorillas, of course. I've got it. T- I'm mixing I my metaphors, it. but you get no, the idea. No, I totally get it, though. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. And then, yeah, hopefully I will see my kid through high school and then be doing some more on the producing side on the other side if I can get my ducks in a row. So that's the hope.
0: There you go. Well, this has been fantastic. I feel like I've learned so much just about (laughs) production and post-production specifically and just overall. I mean, Mm because I think there's so many things that I imagine you as being like fully in it and immersed in it and having done this Mm -hmm. for so long don't realize like how new it is for people. And so for me especially, it's like there's so many parts of it. Like I've been doing this for years in in Mm -hmm. other aspects and acting Mm -hmm. mostly and and obviously podcasts now, but I really Mm -hmm. have not been in on it like that and so it's right. it's interesting to see what the roles and responsibilities are mm-hmm. to see how this could be a path this is a path to production and to being a producer so there's some people who are like well i want to be an executive producer in a film I don't know what ways to get there. And mm-hmm. this is a way to get there. Um, it is. And, yeah. It's about cultivating yeah. relationships and things like that. Oh, you know, I'm you can su- yeah, certainly work your way up through the production
1: office, and that you learn so much doing right. that. You know, there are, there are office coordinators who can do circles around me in terms of the things that they know how to do without thinking about it, whereas I'd have to reinvent the wheel. And so, nothing to snub that. No, uh, not at all. There's just, just the, yeah. the
0: acknowledgement mm-hmm. of the different paths, that there yeah. is not. One path to get there. You Very have true. to go through this this sort of track in order to get there that this right. offers for people who have more skills mm-hmm. in, in this in post-production supervising, for instance, mm-hmm. that is a track still to... Mm-hmm being in production. And I don't mm-hmm. think, I mean, I didn't know that. So I imagine a lot of it other people didn't know that. You you know, well. I mean, it can be. Some people like post and they don't want anything and to do with production. It, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's exactly. nonsense. All that, those
1: hours, that nonsense, That so many people and just, no, they don't want to have anything to do but with it. But that's
0: why it's interesting. It's like, mm-hmm. not only have we defined this role, at least mm-hmm. for me, but also for the audience, but mm-hmm. we've also defined this additional path to production. We've also defined right. what it means to stay local or it mm-hmm. is to go out and be kind of on mm-hmm. set and traveling. And those are also different types of of so experiences, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, and then also kind of like what you alluded to—that there's a difference in sort of an independent film project as well as a studio project, mm-hmm. and what that would look like for your positions. So mm-hmm. these are this is amazing. Thank you, I've learned so much. Well, I'm happy that glad that glad that it was informative. <laughs> It was. Well, I'll leave you to it because I've, I've taken you a little bit longer than I intended. But again, right. thank you for coming on. And I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well,
1: thank you for doing the podcast. I'm glad to hear that someone's out there doing this for people because, you know, thanks. it would have been nice when I was starting if there was a place That's to go. How I felt.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Good. Amazing. All right, All
0: right. Thanks. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank and you. I'll talk you to too. you soon. We'll stay in touch. You bet. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at Mentors on the Mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast. And I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much. And I'll see you next week.